I'm Michelle Sims, and this is the Beauty in the Mess, a community where people who crave a shift in mindset, personal growth, and connection to like-minded people come together to start rewriting their stories. Through engaging, honest, and insightful conversations, the show will help you embrace the mess to recognize the meanings and the lessons it holds and discover its hidden treasures to help you start making a mindset shift. Let's listen, learn, and reclaim who we were meant to be. Hi, friend. Welcome to the Beauty in the Mess. This episode is about John Giordano's journey. However, first I want to say that this is not an episode that you should play if young children are in listening range. There are many topics in this episode that are not kid-appropriate. John grew up in the South Bronx, an an almost mafia-style family. They were actually drug dealers in the family. All kinds of things were going on. His journey, unfortunately, includes a lot of his childhood without his dad. There was sexual abuse. There's drug and alcohol addiction, both his and other family members, and even sex addiction. And he had business partners turn against him as well later in life. However, most importantly, this is a story of triumph. And with God's help, John is now on the other side of that life, being a light in the world and helping others. Just to show you how far he's come, he sold his business that he started with a mere $300 in his pocket for $45 million in 2012. Hi, I'm Michelle Sims, your host. I'm just a regular person who, along with my family, have had our share of messes that we too have had to overcome. Along the way, I got curious as to how others get through their messes and even triumph over them. Maybe there's a better way, a faster way. Maybe we can accelerate our own journeys by learning from someone else. That started my own pursuit. I think we can all learn from each other through the sharing of experiences, lessons, and knowledge. Join me for episode 22 of The Beauty and the Mess, called From the South Bronx to a Millionaire and Everything in Between, with John Giordano. John is an entrepreneur many times over, as well as a certified addiction professional, a master addiction counselor, a certified hypnotherapist, a certified criminal justice specialist, a master in neurolinguistics programming, a certified practitioner of EMDR, certified sentence mitigation specialist, a certified mindfulness and powerful mind-body awareness therapy skills, an international certified alcohol and drug counselor, among even more things. Another thing I do want to mention, though, is he is also an author of four books and a co-author of a fifth book. So without further ado, let's dive right into today's conversation. Hi, John. Welcome to the Beauty and the Mess. Hi. Thank you for being here with us today. Thank you for allowing me on your show. Now, I know you have an amazing uh, resume, so to speak, of accomplishments, but if you don't mind, I'd kind of like you to take us back to long before you achieved everything you have and tell us what life was like, what led you to where you're at today. Okay. What I asked earlier before we went on the air is to read a little excerpt, yep. and I'm going to take you to where I am today for a moment in time, then I'm going to take you back to where it started. Sure. Here's what I wrote, and it's called The Kid from the South Bronx Who Never Gave Up. This is the book, okay? And The Kid from the South Bronx Who Never Gave Up. Here is my roadmap for positive change. There is one thing in this world, one special lesson, one constant that has guided me through the turbulent waters of life. This infinite rule, which most people know but ignore, 
or who simply do not follow their life lessons. That is, no matter what, no matter the circumstances, the obstacles, the people that get in our way, or things that slow us down, follow this one simple rule. Never give up on your dreams, never let go of your passions, and never give up on yourself or a God of your understanding. My name is John Giordano, and I'm a recovering addict who turned $300 into $45 million. I was blessed to become extremely successful, and I'd like to share my story with you. This is how my life was transformed and I was saved from falling into the abyss of hell. And by following this one rule and learning how to have a life worth living. Wow. So that's just my words that I give people. And when they hear my story, then they'll get a better understanding of what that all means. My family was a mafia type family. My father was a heroin addict. My uncle was a hitman. My other family members did nefarious things. When I was eight, my father got arrested and went to jail for four years. So I grew up without a dad for those formidable years. And at eight and a half, I got molested by some boys in the neighborhood. And part of me liked it in a way. And the other part, of course, was shame and guilt and anger. I couldn't understand how part of me would feel good. But, you know, treating people that have been sexually abused They don't realize until you start talking to them that sometimes for a moment in time, even if it's a tenth of a second, it may feel good. And then you realize what's going on. And at nine years old, I got molested by my babysitter, who she was 14 and I was nine. Wow. Then I got into gangs. I was in a white gang, a black gang, Hispanic gang. I was in every kind of gang known to man. And I don't know what I was doing. I was searching for something. And at 14 and a half, I winded up getting into karate. I'm not going to get into a lot of the details because this way you can read the book and you can find them. I don't want to tell you the whole book. Right. So I wound up in karate and I wound up leaving the gangs. I didn't do any drugs. I didn't drink. I didn't do anything. I worked out. I became a karate champion. Later on in the years, I became a grandmaster and black belt hall of fame. And I'm a national karate champion and judo champion. So I did all that stuff. When I was 20, I got married and my uncle threw my wedding and the caterer insulted him in front of the family. Well, that caused a big problem because the next morning he killed them. Oh my gosh. So we had my new bride and I had to leave back down to Florida. And what the part was, was she was Jewish and I'm Italian and they wanted her to marry a Jewish boy. And the problem was that I'm not Jewish. But they met my family, and they loved my family. That's <laughs> kind of funny. We know how to put on a good show. And when my uncle killed a caterer, the detectives were coming to my grandmother's house where everybody was sitting around having food and celebrating. Wow. And we had to leave. My grandmother was throwing guns down to shoot. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. So it was one of those type of things. So if you're worried about having a crazy family, I'll lend you mine for a while. Let me know how you do. So was grandma involved in all this herself? No, no. Well, grandma, you know, listen, uh, the women of the family always covered for the men in the family. I'll put it to you that way. I was just curious. People say, hey, don't you watch The Sopranos? They said, no, no, I live it. I don't want to watch it. Okay. So I only went to the ninth grade. I quit school in the ninth grade and I couldn't spell very well. And my grammar wasn't that great. But now they have grammar check and spell check, so I'm fine. 
it's just amazing how my life changed. Well, what happened before it changed, I said it would never be like my family. Well, I became just like my family. I became a drug dealer. I used to do collection work for the smugglers. Matter of fact, one of the cartels in Colombia, I flew over there to train his bodyguards wow. to protect him. I did a lot of crazy stuff. Now, this was after you got married? Yeah, well, I got married four times. So we'll get into that too. Oh, okay. My father told me to keep doing it till you get it right. Okay. So this time I got it right. I'm together 27 years with my wife, a wonderful human being in the world. And we both in recovery. Congratulations. So anyway, I was getting out of control and my family did an intervention on me. Now I told you what my family was. My brother was a drug dealer. My whole family was crazy. They're loving people. I mean, you meet them, you think, wow, what a great family. You know, just don't mess with them. That's all. <laughs> my grandfather was a Shylock. So was my dad. Shylock is somebody who loans you money at a high interest rate. If you don't pay, you'll pay one way or the other. Oh, wow. So that's what I grew up with. It was kind of a crazy existence. I'll put it that way to you. I never forget it. When I was in grammar school, I wanted to become a priest. Oh, wow. And the priest came over the house and my father threw him out. He cursed at him and threw him out. I said, I want grandchildren. Now get that F out of here. Wow. <laughs> and he threw the priest out of the house. <laughs> I said, oh my God, you know, what are you going to do? That's life in the Giordano family. I'll put it that way. So I left when I was 17 and a half. That's when I went down to Florida by myself. I started a karate school. I brought this particular Nisi Goju karate to Florida. And it became a pioneer in the martial arts and the state of Florida, but I led a double life like most addicts. What you see is not what you really got. Part of me was helping people and helping kids and the community. Wow. Matter of fact, that while using drugs, I had my own television show for six years on Cable Tap, a public television show, call-in show. It was a live show. First it was a half-hour show, taped, and then they wanted to do it live. But I was only using on the weekends, and really sometimes I didn't use it at all. That was in the beginning. So I had this program, this television show. I had senators on, I had judges on, I had police officers, addicts on, homeless people, people with HIV, and people would call in and ask questions. And that's how I won the humanitarian award for the show. Wow. I did a lot of crazy stuff. I did plays in the theater performing arts. And this is while I was still touching base with drugs. And I did eight plays in the theater performing arts. I did Kabuki theater plays. So I did that standing room only had about 3,500 people at the show. So I did that stuff. Just to show you that addicts, they can be functional. And that's why you wouldn't even know that there's something going on with them. But eventually the drugs take over. But before it took over, I also did the James Brown concert. I was the marketing director for this place called Free Market USA. What I did was one of my students was partners and he owned part of the market. It was a 500 businesses under one roof. And he wanted to sell me a boot. They said, no, no, I want to work for you. I don't want a boot. He says, well, well you know, sensei, sensei means teacher. He says, I do karate, but what do you mean? I says, no, I want to work for you and I'll build this place up and I'll market it and I'll do the security for you. He said, well, how much money do you want? He said, I want a thousand a week. Now this is 1980, 81. He said, what? I said, tell you what, give me $250 a week and you give me marching orders. And in three months, I will complete them. Then I want my thousand a week. Wow. So he gave me this absurd marching order. Well, I completed it. So he gave me thousand a week. 
And what happened was they wanted a grand opening like nobody ever had. And I used to have a security company. So I used to work for the Agora Ballrooms. And my friend who owned it knew James Brown. And he was in the entertainment business. So I contacted James Brown. And before he did the concert, I said to the owners, I said, look, we have to have a theme of what we're doing here. See, because in Liberty City and Overtown is in the Black community, they just had the riots. So nobody wanted to go into that neighborhood. They were afraid. So he says, we're revitalizing Liberty City and Overtown. So they says, okay. They says, well, what do you want to do? I says, look, I want to invite President Reagan to come to our grand opening. So everybody, of course, laughed. They said, John, we love you, but now you're the president ain't coming to a flea market. I said, well, you never know. So I got a letter back from the White House. It's in the book, by the way, if you, nobody believes me. All right, saying, well, the president, sorry, can't come due to the scheduling, but we're sending somebody instead. And they sent Carrie Meeks. Carrie Meeks was the state representative, and then eventually she became Senator Meeks. Well, you know, they investigate you very thoroughly before anybody come to you, okay? And they went around and they looked at what I was doing and they heard about me. And I taught karate in Liberty City and most of the people knew me there because most of my black belts are black. So she went to the Martha Luther King Foundation and she presented me with the Martha Luther King Award on stage in front of 60,000 people that showed up. It's in the book. It's in my website also. You can see as far as your eye can see in every direction, people shoulder to shoulder, thousands upon thousands of people. And the police department and the three counties were worried that we're going to have a riot because I invited the Hispanic community, the Caucasian community, and the African-American community all together. They said, you can't do that. There's going to be, they had snipers on the roof. They, oh, it was like unbelievable. Wow. So, and the last note on James Brown's guitars and their songs, it rained. It poured, Right. So everybody had to leave. Nobody was there to fight or do anything anyway. That's great. So that was that story. So eventually what happened after that, I started to fall apart because when you do drugs, eventually they're fun in the beginning. You could work, you could do a lot of things, but eventually they turn on you and your personality changes, your brain changes, everything happens. So I was getting out of control. And my family did an intervention on me. Like I said earlier, I'm wondering who's doing an intervention on them, but they were doing it on me. An intervention is when people get together with a therapist and they talk to you to see if you can go to treatment. I didn't even know what treatment was. I didn't even know what NA or AA, all the self I didn't even know what the heck they were talking about. Therapy. Ooh, I'm not going to tell anybody my secrets. I have to kill them. Anyway, they did an intervention on me and my mother said she'll never speak to me again and you know, my mother wasn't like that. So I said, you know what? Let me take a break and get everybody off my back. All right. So I had some Coke in my sock. I went into the bathroom, did a couple of hits on this cocaine. And I went up to the treatment center at Mount Sinai Hospital. And here I am, I'm stoned and I have dark sunglasses. I don't want anybody to know who I am. That's how crazy and stupid I was. Because I taught a lot of the doctors and nurses, their kids, karate. Oh, wow. So here I am teaching karate, and here I am a drug addict in the treatment center. And they had no clue, I'm sure, when you showed up. Wow. No, nobody had a clue. They don't have a clue. Until you really get stupid, and then everybody has a clue, except you. (laughs) (laughs) So what happened was I went to treatment, and they said, hey, listen, you got to share your secrets in group. 
I said, I won't even get high with you people, let alone talk to you. All right? I was the nastiest client they wanted me, but my family knew the owners of the treatment center. They should have thrown me out about a thousand times. I never unpacked my luggage. I always had it in the closet ready to leave. Matter of fact, I was always at the elevators trying to leave. And they always would grab me. Come on, John, let's talk, but bring me back. And I would go back and say, oh, okay. So it was during Christmas time. And after a while, I started, it was about three weeks. December 4th, I just made 38 years in recovery. Oh, wow. Congratulations. I didn't think it would make 38 minutes, but who knows? You don't know what's around the corner. No, or no one does. Most people live in the future. They get anxiety, they live in the past, and they get depressed. And they skip over the present. Very true. So what happened was, is that I started to clear up and I started to really see what a damage I was doing to myself and to my family and to my children. And I had two kids and a wife that was using also. And of course, addicts don't live with people that don't use. And if they don't use, they're usually codependents. And uh, a codependent is somebody who puts everybody else's life ahead of them. Right. So they're just as sick as the addict, but in a different way. Anyway, what happened was I started to clear up. And, and I said to them, I want to go home for Christmas Eve. And they said, no, you can't. Well, I don't know about you or anybody else that's listening to this. I didn't get angry. I got rageful. Oh, wow. And it didn't go away in an hour. All right. Sometimes it was hours. Sometimes it was even days. So I walked into my room. I punched the door and I'm standing in there and I'm really upset and I'm angry and I'm throwing things around the room like a fool. And I remember the counselor telling me, John, you ever pray on your knees? And I remember me telling him, listen, I'm a recovering Catholic. I got calluses on my knees. Don't tell me about God. What do you mean? God don't hear me. How about if I'm in the closet? Can he hear me? So he says, no, how about humility? So I said, ah, give me a break already with humility. But it stuck in my head for some reason. And I was in so much pain and so much anger. So I was waking up from the drugs that I said, let me get down on one knee. And I still feel that emotion. It's really interesting after all these years. I couldn't get down on my knee. I know that sounds ridiculous, but I couldn't. I had to push my knee down. And Michelle, let me tell you, it was weird. And then I had to push my other knee down. And for the first time in my life, I prayed to whatever's out there. So whatever you are, wow. okay, just I'll do anything you want. Just get this pain out of me. Well, it disappeared like it never was there. That's incredible. Now, as sick as I was, I tried to get it back. It didn't come back. So that was kind of like my first spiritual awakening and treatment. I bet. And the reason I wanted to go home wasn't to see the children, was because my friends would come over and give me a Christmas card with cocaine in it. So I was full of crap anyway. <laughs> oh, wow. I thought it was to go see your family. <laughs> no, 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 no. Addicts are not like that. You know how you know when addicts lying? When they open their mouth. <laughs> when they move their lips. <laughs> <laughs> so now about... Three and a half weeks, they have what is known as exiting. Exiting is when you sit down in a room with the nurses, with the therapist, with the doctor, the doctors that are there, and they give you an evaluation if you need long-term treatment, a couple of more weeks, you can go home. So I went in there and they go, John's doing really well, and he's participating in group, which I was. He's doing everything that he's supposed to do. And then... The head doctor said, he's full of crap. And oh, you can take the kid out of the street, but you can't take the street out of the kid. I blew up and called her every name in the book. 
And then I made the stupidest comment any fool can make. I said, you know, I can kill everybody in this room and nobody would have me to get out alive. Oh, wow. And the doctor looked at me and he said to me, John, all we want to do is help you. And I busted out into tears and I ran out of the room. And that was my true spiritual awakening that I finally woke up and realized that I was just not a human being anymore. Wow. And what I was doing to my children and myself, it really hit home, you know, and how stupid I was talking and acting. They gave me two extra weeks <laughs> and they said, well, we don't know if John's going to make it, but he needs two extra weeks at least. And I did the two extra weeks. And as soon as I got out and my wife picked me up, she hands me a vial of cocaine and says, just do one hit. She says, you haven't done drugs in six weeks. Wow. I said, what? I just been in treatment for six weeks and you're telling me to do. I said, forget about it. So in the program, they tell you don't make any major decisions for at least nine months to a year. I listened to them. And, you know, we had aftercare and you're supposed to go for six months. I went for a year and a half. That's great. <laughs> I didn't want to get out of aftercare. And I went to therapy. I did everything they told me to do. I did. Did I believe in it? I'll be honest with you. No, but I went anyway. So I used to complain in group. I used to go, hey, when is this going to get better? I still feel like hell. I says, I'm still down. My life is turning to garbage still. I'm not working. What's going on? My wife is trying to get me high. And they said to me, hey, John, did you use today? I said, no. He said, well, it already got better. Wow. So that's how I continued. And then about nine months, I said, I can't live there anymore with my wife because it's not healthy for me. And it's not healthy for her either. All right. So we got divorced. Now, she got the car, the house, the kids, everything. And I got nothing. And I had no place to live. A friend of mine loaned me a room. I was homeless. And a friend of mine lent me a bicycle. All right. And I had a jar where I used to put my quarters in when I had quarters. And I couldn't do collection work for the smugglers anymore. And I couldn't deal drugs anymore. Now, I never had a felony or misdemeanor. I never had anything at all, as far as the Lord is concerned. Wow. God was watching over me. And it was crazy. So I'm sitting there and I'm going, you know, my kids used to come. We all used to cry together. They'd say, Daddy, what are you doing here in this one room at a little hot plate, you know? And I says, look, Daddy's just changing his life, you know? It was very painful, very shameful. And then I had a sex addiction in a way too, because addicts switch. They don't have one addiction. They either do the gambling, they go to drinking, they go to sex, they go to a workaholic, they go to different behaviors right. that are harmful to oneself. And I said, oh, great. Now HIV's around. Now I'm going to get a disease and I'm going to die from that. I said, if this is recovery, this is terrible. But I kept going and I kept going. They said 90 meetings in 90 days. I don't know how many meetings I went, but triple that. Wow. Why I went, I just went. And eventually it started to seep in what they were saying. And I started to get a handle on John. And with all the abuse issues and all the trauma I had in my life and the kids in the neighborhood, I used to be bullied. One day the kids in the neighborhood, I think it was about maybe about eight and a half, nine or eight, I don't know. And the kids in the neighborhood said to me, I wanted to play ball with them. They said, you're too fat. You can't play with us. You're too slow. And then they said, well, if you want to be captain of the team, let us touch you and you touch us in your private parts. And we'll make you captain of the team. Uh -huh. 
So I said, yeah. So I let them do that. And then they laughed at me and ran away. So these are all the traumas. And I'm very open and honest about it because, see, they don't have power over me anymore. And those of you that are out there that suffer from trauma and sexual abuse and all that stuff, you can get over it. But you got to be open and honest and you got to be willing to talk about it and realize it's in the past. It's over. Those are your lessons. There are no failures in life, only lessons. And in the present, you change what you want from the next moment. So it's only a moment at a time. Some people say a day at a time. I say, no, no. Too many things can go on in one day. It's a moment at a time. And you create your new future in the present. That's why they call it the present, because it is a present. Right. It's a gift. That's amazing. So I had an idea. I says, hmm, I want to open up a treatment center. Now, the only thing I knew about treatment centers is I was in one. Okay. okay. <laughs> so, so I told the guy that owned the hotel that lent me the room. He's a friend of mine. I said, to him, listen, I got this doctor who's a famous doctor. He heard about him. And I says, he wants to open up a treatment center. I just got to raise the money. He said, well, how much money do you need? I pulled it out of my ear. I said, 250000 He said, you got it if you got him. Now, I lied to him. I never even talked to the doctor. Oh, wow. so, so I went to the doctor. And he was my doctor at Mount Sinai. So I said, hey, I got $250,000. Would you like to open up a treatment center? So he was a comedian in a way also. He said, John, you know what? I was just thinking about that when you walked in the door. So we wind up opening up the treatment center. And I didn't know it was unethical. I tried to hire, well, I did hire a lot of the people that treated me at Mount Sinai Hospital. Right. I hired the program director. I hired some of the nurses. I had some of the therapists. And I gave them double the money that they were making. So they came along with me. Now, what happened was, like I told you, I only went to the ninth grade. So I went and I got my GED, which I was paralyzed. I haven't been to school in 25 years. I didn't even remember fractions. And they were talking about algebra. I didn't even have algebra in school. So I had a guess at most of the stuff that's on the test. And I passed. I got, I think about five points, I passed the test. So I got my GED. That's awesome. Then I went to school for addiction training. You need the 300 hours and 6,000 hours of other jobs. Religion. Oh, wow. So I went to school and it was different for me at the college because I owned a treatment center. Most of the people there wanted to work in the treatment center, including the teachers. So I had a whole different thing with everybody. So eventually they gave me validatorium of the school. They did a whole article on me and all this. Stuff. I don't even know how I got to all these places, but somehow things happened. That's awesome. And I hired my teacher to be a family therapist. So it's crazy how things work out. Anyway, I finally got my 300 hours. And then what happened, the doctor and my therapist, who I hired, helped save my life, took the treatment center out from under me. Okay, My therapist didn't like that he was working for his client. Oh, wow. It's a long story. It's in the book. I'm not going to get into the whole thing. Anyway, they gave me the outpatient clinic. They told me if I don't sign over the treatment center, there's still another corporation. And my friend that put up the money will lose his money. So otherwise, sign this paper and, and we'll give him the accounts receivables. And we'll give you the outpatient part of the treatment center, which was all intensive outpatient, which had three clients. I didn't know what to do. So I signed the paper. And I left the office of this lawyer and I called my uncle up and I told him what happened. He says, I'll be right down. I'll straighten this out right away. So he was going to kill him. 
who you go to when you're in trouble, you know. So anyway, I came to my senses just before he got on the plane to leave. And I told him, please don't come. It, it, they settled it. We're good. All right. Which it really wasn't that good. We had three clients. They were trying to push me out. All right. So what wound up happening was I came up with an idea. How do we have to have continuity of care? So from inpatient, they needed to come intensive outpatient, then outpatient, then aftercare. And so that's how I packed the whole treatment center. But during this three years, because it was 2,000 hours a year, okay, this guy, my therapist kept trying to get rid of me. Right. And he hired this other guy who taught at the university addiction treatment to be my clinical director and told him that the clients don't like me, my charts are terrible, and I want you to oversee it so I can get rid of them. This is how this went down. Oh, wow. So this guy comes in, this guy, Jimmy, and he was a boxer also, and I'm a karate guy. So we hit it off, right? He watched me do groups for a couple of weeks. He looked at all my charts. And then he said to me, come here, John, I don't understand. Your charts are fine. The clients will love you. Why is he saying these things? So I told him the story. He said, oh, now I understand. So I had to go back and report to him that I was, uh, what do you call it? Something that was really worthwhile to have. An asset, yeah. An asset instead of a, you know. Liability. So I got my 6,000 hours. And then I went, you know, at the time to get my CAP, Certified Addiction Professional. Today you need a master's. Then you just needed a GED. So this is 1985. So what happened was, it was really funny. I was rooming with two other roommates. One was a PhD and one was a LCSW, right? And they all wanted to take the test to get a certified addiction professional diploma. So I'm walking around. I was always into alternative treatments. I'm walking around with a headset with lights in it. Okay. I taped all the 200 questions with the answer with a headset on. And I'm walking around the room. The lights are flashing at them. And everybody's laughing hysterical about me. Well, the funny part was I was the only one that passed the test. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> they all wanted to know where I bought this machine. But it was even funnier when I had to take the test. So back then, what they did, they had a table. They had three therapists. They put you on a seat lower than where they are, right? So now you're already intimidated. Then they had a recorder. Wow. And they had to give a case presentation, right? So they said, are you ready? I said, yeah, I'm ready. You know, I was a nervous wreck. So all of a sudden, from the door, you hear, hey, man, anybody want coffee in there? So they're ignoring him. Not supposed to have any expressions, right, or whatever. And the guy wouldn't go away. He says, I think you better tell him you don't want anything because he's not going away. And they busted up laughing. I busted up laughing. That broke up the whole ice. And that's how I did my case presentation. That's pretty neat. And I got my CAB. So that was one of the funny stories. Then I wanted to get licensure. So I went to college at Barry University. I opened up the book, and I wanted to see when the book was written. It was seven years old. I said, wait a second, seven years old, I'm going to be there for four years. The book is already outdated. By the time I get out of here, it's antiquated. Right. I don't want to do that. So I left. I quit. So then I got my certifications. I have a master's in neuro-linguistic programming. I'm a hypnotherapist. I'm a criminal justice specialist. I'm a mitigation specialist. I got all these certifications and an EMDR specialist. And I have a master's in addiction counseling certification, but they consider the master's. Wow. So 
that's all the degrees I got that actually help people, you know? Yeah. So that's what I did. I finally got the 6,000 hours and I couldn't take it anymore. And my sponsor was this guy, Jimmy, who was supposed to be my clinical director, became my sponsor. And that's somebody who helps you with the steps and helps you get through the self-help groups and all that stuff. And he was a great therapist also. And I said, Jimmy, I can't take it anymore. I want to straighten this guy out. So the old John came out for a moment, <laughs> not all the way out, but he stuck his head out, you know. See, my uncle, the guy that killed the caterer, right. well, he had a cocaine addiction also, and we put him in treatment, okay? And it was really funny. That's before they threw me out, all right? And uh, he's in group, and all of a sudden, I'm in my office, and the therapist comes running in, John, John, your uncle. I said, what'd he do? Who, who'd he hurt? He said, no, no, he's telling everybody all the people he killed. I said, I told you what he did for a living. Oh my gosh. So this guy who was my therapist knew who he was. So I had enough. I walked into the office. I was supposed to get a contract with a percentage. I never got paid a percentage. I got a salary. I never got paid a percentage. So I walked into the office. I slammed the door. I said, listen, I'm going to rearrange your face. No plastic surgery will ever be able to put it back together again. That's number one. Oh, wow. I said, now with number two, I'm calling my uncle up, who you know already, okay? And he's going to come down and blow your knees out, so you're not going to be able to walk anymore. Now, I want my contract. And if I don't get it within the hour, I said, I'm calling him up. And he looked at me. I said, don't say a word, because I don't want to hear it, okay? And I walked out of the office. Well, within an hour and a half, two hours, I had my contract. Wow. (laughs) Two months later, I left. And they gave me $80,000. They made millions. Wow. It was okay. My fault, because I didn't even have a lawyer. I was so, I can't even be there. 14 months clean. I have my own treatment center. Right. Yeah. And I'm walking around and we had a hospital program. I had a floor of a hospital. That's amazing. And I'm walking around designing it, putting the pictures, doing holistic treatments. You know, we're trying to get the best food and the vitamins and yoga and karate classes and meditation, you know, that kind of stuff. And I couldn't believe this was happening to me, but that's okay. So I left. So my friend that put up the original money got almost all his money back from the council receivables. And then what had happened was he said, I got another guy that wants a treatment center in West Palm Beach. Now I'm in Miami. He's in West Palm Beach. So I says, okay. He said, but he wants a business plan. I said, I'll be honest with you. I have no clue how to do a business plan. No, no, I'll do it for you. So we did it. I gave him the information. He wrote it up for me. So I get up to West Palm Beach. About two minutes from my meeting, I forgot the business plan. Uh-huh. I did that, but I did it. I says, I thought I put it in the briefcase, but I didn't. Anyway, I couldn't go back. I had to go forward. So I went forward. I told the guy, look, I'm embarrassed, but I forgot the, the down business plan. He says, I don't need a business plan. Here's a napkin. Tell me what you need the money for. So I wrote down. You see, I learned everything about this business while I had the other treatment center. Right. Everything. Because I was the administrator also. I was an assistant counselor. I was a marketing. I did everything. So I said, okay. So he said, how much do you need? I don't know. I the same number, two quarter of a million dollars. He said, you got it. So we opened up a 30-bed facility, right? We, we designed it. We did everything. I put all the stuff that I wanted to do in there, right? I got a new sponsor. Okay, who was making twenty nine thousand a year in a hospital program, and I gave him fifty thousand a year, and we became best friends, and he would help me and everything like that. And anyway, we put the program together, 
and we were packed. Back then, when you called, you, it cost you money to call out of where you are, right? Right. So it cost $700 in phone bills, but I brought in $70,000 worth of business. Wow. So he said to me, you're fired. I said, excuse me? I said, you can't fire me. He said, I'm your partner. He said, you didn't read your contract. Well, I made the same mistake twice. Oh, wow. Now, remember, I'm a street kid. If you mess with me, I punch you in the face. But now I don't do that anymore. Right. Okay? So in, in the real world, you need a lawyer. Well, John made a mistake again, didn't have a lawyer. I was going to throw him through the window, but my recovery kicked in. Then I turned around and I talked to my sponsor, who was the clinical director at the time. I says, come on, Pete, let's go. He says, I can't leave. I said, what do you mean you can't leave? He says, John, I just bought a house. How am I going to leave? So here I am again. Okay. I took my box with all my stuff in and sat in the trunk of my car and cried. I couldn't believe this happened to me again. So after that, the woman that was my teacher in school, who I hired as my family therapist, offered me a job at this treatment center, which was a finished program. It was a public program. It was for people that had mental health issues, comorbidity, substance abuse issues, and HIV. So I became the clinical director. In reality, the reason she hired me because she liked me. I put it to you that way. Okay. Right. So I'm watching what they're doing here. And it was like an OTC, which is a therapeutic community, where they put the person in the middle of the room, they attack them, beat them up, break them down, and then supposedly bring them back up. I said, wait a second. I never needed anybody to break me down. I did a good enough job on my own beating myself up. So that didn't work for me. And I was teaching everybody karate, all the clients, and I tried to change their food. We used to get it donated. But they used to give them chocolates and cake and sugary products at lunchtime. Right. The clients used to act out, of course. Give your kids some of that. If you don't believe me, watch what happened. Sugar, yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. So we used to put them on a bench, put a sign around their neck, okay, and shame them acting out because we gave them the, the sugar. But they said, wait a second, this is absurd. What are we doing here? So what I did was, I made a mistake. I didn't tell the staff, okay? I got rid of the cakes and the chocolates. Oh, wow. And I got a meeting with all of the clients, and I explained to them what sugar does to them, why they're acting the way they're doing, and all this other kind of stuff. And they were willing. They all went aboard with it. So what happened was, no cakes, no chocolates, no anything at lunchtime. Well, the program director, which is the woman that hired me, went berserk. She's an alcoholic. And alcoholics are sugar junkies because alcohol turns to sugar in the body. So they crave sugar. Wow. I didn't realize that. <laughs> All right. Even if they're not drinking anymore, now they're craving sugar. They become a carboholic and a sugarholic. See? So she didn't like it. And then we had a disagreement and all this kind of stuff, and eventually I resigned. And I had a friend of mine, Jerry, that worked there, and I resigned, and then this girl, it was uh, this woman I was going out with said, why didn't you open up your own treatment center? I said, I'm not opening up anything. No, thank you. I already have $300 in the bank. I says, I'm not opening up anything. He said, no, 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 you can do it. Your friend has that building there, 750 square feet building. He's your good friend, ask him. So I went, Okay, so I went to my friend Bill, who's another karate guy, and he was a chiropractor, and I go, Bill, how much is that building for rent? He said, how much you got? I said, well, I got $300. He 
So he said to me, he goes, John, tell you what, $300, you can pay me three months, you get free rent till you build it up and then pay me the $300 a month. Wow. I said, oh, okay, cool. So I started telling everybody I have a treatment center. So everybody used to laugh at me because they used to, you know, we were talking, giving them vitamins and, and meditation and talking about the gut, talking about the second brain. You have to remember, so this was over 20 years ago. Right. Now they're talking about the gut and the, I laugh. So then everybody in the community, all the people that own treatment centers, and I never took insurance, only took cash. Right. And they said to me, oh yeah, go to Giordano, it gives you vitamin, treats your gut, and you're cured. Now, I wasn't saying that, but that's what they gleaned out of my information. So I wanted to hire my friend, Jerry. I wanted him to be my partner because I needed help because it started to grow. All right. So he says, well, let me see your books. So I went, what books? I don't have any books. He said, well, how do you know who pays you? Well, they give me the money to put it in my pocket. They'll pay me. He said, John, they're addicts. What do you mean they're going to pay you? They don't pay you. I said, well, you know, so what? As long as they get the help they need, I can get my bills paid. I'm happy. Oh, wow. But he says, no. I'll go parties with you, but I run the business. I said, okay. So he actually taught me how to run a business. So what happened was we blew up, we expanded. And it was crazy. It got so big. I only had a little 750 square foot room, right? I had to have it out in the parking lot to have my clients when we used to do group because it became like stupid huge. Then I hooked up with a Dr. Deborah Mash. She's a neuroscientist from the University of Miami School of Medicine. She was the head of the Brain Bank and the Alzheimer's Foundation, who was doing a research project on a substance called Ibogaine. I don't know if you're familiar with that. What was it again? I'm sorry. Ibogaine. Okay. Okay. Ibogaine is a bush from West Africa that the Weedy tribe used as a rite of passage. It's a partial psychedelic. Okay. So what happened was, is this guy, Howard Lutzoff, who was a heroin addict, he used to do about 10 bags, 15 bags, I don't know. A lot of heroin every day, right? Decided he wanted a new high. So he went to Gabron and he did Ibogaine. Well, oddly enough, the next morning he woke up detoxed and no cravings. Now, that is the most unheard of, ridiculous thing anybody's ever heard of. Wow. Okay, because it usually takes anywhere from seven to nine days. It's stable, not even detox. They call it detox. It's not detox. It's stabilization, yeah. right? So he says, wow, I can make a lot of money with this. So he opened up a clinic in Panama. That's when he got a hold of Dr. Nash. Nash saw what was going on there, right? He started doing research, right? He got some IRB and he started doing research. And I called her because it was written up in the paper where she was looking for people to do the substance on. I said, listen, I'd like to really come over and try that. Oh, no, 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 I'm too busy. I already got people. Thanks a lot. Hung up on me. All right. So six months later, I get a call. Who is it? Dr. Mash. She says, look, Giordano, everywhere I go, your name keeps popping up. He says, like, no matter where I go, everybody points me to you. I said, oh, okay. She says, how would you like to work with me? I said, okay, I'd love to. She says, all the clients will come to you. You do their blood work. You do put them on a heart monitor. Make sure they have a 24-hour heart monitor that they're appropriate for treatment and stuff like that, and then bring them over to St. Kitts, because in St. Kitts, it was legal. Okay, so that's what I did for 13 years. And that's how my treatment center blew up, because I had all her clients do. Wow. And, you know, then I invited my friends, because I made a lot of friends with the psychiatrist, and Dr. Seeley, who's a psychiatrist, the NFL, the NBA, 
I told him about Ibogaine. He says, John, I love you. He says, I know you're into all the alternative stuff, but John, this is impossible. I said, I tell you what, Rick, you bring your worst client. I'll pay you out of my pocket. If everything I say is not true, okay, I'll pay for it. If not, you pay for it. He says, you got it. So he brought the worst client. The guy was like, damn dead. I said, oh, I see you brought the best client you have. He said, oh, okay, go ahead. Good luck. The next morning, he looked at me and almost fell down. He says, what is this? This ain't the same guy. Wow. I said, no kidding. Why do you think I'm going to make an idiot out of myself and tell you this? That's amazing. All right. So we had everybody. We had so many psychiatrists and doctors came there with their patients. She was getting data, data, and she was doing research. Right. Actually, currently today, she's in England. Oh, she just came back, as a matter of fact. And they're doing what they call the FDA trials over there. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I became one of the leading experts on psychedelics. And I began because I was the one that did pre and post when they came out of the journey. See, what we would do is after they passed muster and they weren't uh, paranoid schizophrenic, they didn't have a disassociative diagnosis, they would be okay to do Ibogaine. Okay. And they couldn't be on benzos. We had to change them off the benzos. There was a lot of things that we had to do to get them ready to do Ibogaine. When you do psychedelics, you have to do intention. You have to have the intention of what you want to accomplish. And what I would do is I would bring all of their traumas as much as I could have them gleam out of their brain, even though they're like a little whacked out, to the front, okay? Right. Then we would put them in a hospital bed. We would put an IV in their arm. In case there's any kind of an event, we can get them out. Heart monitor on them. Of course, oxygen, you know, thing on their finger. And we would put eye shades on them and headset with music to keep them in a containment field. Then we would give them a test dose. And then in 45 minutes, if they tolerate it, okay, we'll we give them a full dose. And depending if they're fast metabolizers, slow metabolizers, how their liver functions, they would go into this dream state for 8, 10, 12 hours. Wow. And they would have what is known as a cathartic experience. They would have resolution of their traumas. To put it simplistically, it's like going back into your childhood as an adult and viewing all of the stuff that went on growing up. And they would come out detoxed, okay, and without any cravings. The only problem we would have with them is they thought they were cured. No, you have to go to treatment. You have to go to therapy. You have to go to support groups because all the behaviors you develop over time, okay, need to be addressed and you need to start creating good behaviors. So after that, my partner, Jerry, had his son come to us who was an internet genius. Well, let me tell you, we started with $300. We had one little room. Then we went across the street and I said, let's get the building across the street. Now we didn't really have any money. So he said, John, it's not for sale. I said, everything's for sale. So I went and talked to the person that owned, it was a medical center. I knew they weren't doing very well. I said, look, I'd like to buy your building. I'll give you $25,000 more than the building's worth. Wow. She says, yeah. I said, yeah but you got to hold the mortgage. And so she held it. Well, let me tell you, three years later, we sold the building. We made $100,000 wow. on the building. That's amazing. Right? Then when Jerry came, he built up the business with the internet. And we grew from that little building, which was 500 square feet, to seven buildings and 147 employees. 
Wow. We had a phone room. We were getting a thousand calls, 800 to a thousand calls a day. Wow. And we only had 62 beds. So what we did was we sold our runoff calls to other treatment centers for a quarter of a million dollars a month. Now, let me tell you something, Michelle. That's my wife's name, by the way, too. So she spells it with one L also. Spells it the right way. <laughs> so I couldn't believe what was happening. I mean, look, we had in the beginning, we had people chasing us for money, creditors. We couldn't make payroll. It was crazy. And what happened eventually, we started making money. One of the client's father was like a multi-multi-millionaire. We saved the kid's life. Well, he saved his life. All we did was guide him. Bought us the buildings. And we paid him 8% on his money. And we paid the buildings off. Wow. And that's how we had it. It was our angel. And then in 2012, we sold it for $45 million. That's astounding. But... What we did with our treatment center, and nobody even today has done, they talk about it all the time. I walk into a conference, they all say, oh, that's Giordano. And he had G&G, Holistic Addiction Treatment Program. Because what I did, or what we did, was I did hyperbaric medicine for post-acute withdrawal syndrome. Because who's going to argue that drugs and alcohol don't damage the brain? Right. And what do you do for pause? Nothing. Time. So try talking to healing your brain. Just talk to it. Now, it doesn't work very well. So most doctors will tell you time, which is like stupid. That means I don't know. So we used to put them in hyperbaric chamber, help heal their brain. Then we did neurofeedback, biofeedback, aromatherapy, acupuncture. We did colonics. We did, because most time, opium addicts, especially opium addicts, all those drugs are in their in lower intestines. We cleaned out that. We did lymphatic massage because drugs go on a cellular level in their body. We did light and sound therapy. We did amino acid therapy. We tested for allergies because allergies also can cause depression. A lot of people don't realize that. And we tested the gut and we treated the gut. But people don't realize, and that's what I lecture about today, is that where does depression and anxiety come from? And everybody goes, oh, trauma, low self-esteem, things that happened in your childhood, blah, 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 blah. Yes, that's partially true. But the last time I checked, your head was attached to your body. So if that's the case, doesn't your body have anything to do with this? So it's a system, just like our planet is a system. So what's with the system? Well, if you have a low thyroid, if you have a thyroid problem, can you have depression and anxiety? Absolutely. It says it right in the medical literature. Wow. Low thyroid can cause depression and anxiety. If you have leaky gut syndrome or H. pylori infection in your gut, you can look it up. I tell everybody, look it up. Okay. You can have depression and anxiety. If you have hypoglycemia, low blood sugar, you can have depression and anxiety. If you have a closed head injury, you can have depression, anxiety, and suicidal ideation and behavioral problems. If you have heavy metal toxicity, it can mimic bipolar disorder and attention deficit disorder because it interferes with neurotransmission. Now, everything I just told you, okay, is factual. It's based on medical, okay? Look it up, everybody tell me, look it up. I lecture at neuroscience conferences all over the world. Okay. I've been in Taipei, I've been in Budapest. I lectured almost a hundred countries. Wow. And I talk about this and they all go, wow, we never even thought of that. I said, well, how can you treat somebody without looking at them medically. Right. Whole body. 
because these are things that could cause depression and anxiety. So let's give you a thyroid Prozac. Let me know how you do, by the way. So we both know that's not going to work very well. Okay. So these are the bottom line. And so what I learned to do is I have to go in doctors and medical communities wheelhouse. Because if you go out of the wheelhouse, they don't listen to you. So most therapists, all of us therapists, we're not trained for this stuff. We're already trained. You look at a, a, a certain set of circumstances and behaviors, and then we diagnose. We're not looking at the whole person, what they eat, what they drink. If you don't drink enough water, what happens to the brain? It shrinks. And it causes other abnormalities. If you don't have proper nutrients, it causes other abnormalities. Right. This is facts. You know, don't have any vitamin C. Look at scurvy. I mean, we don't realize this. Now we're looking at the immune system. Autoimmune diseases, most of it comes from the gut. Most people don't know where serotonin and dopamine come from. They think it comes from the brain. No, it comes from your second brain, which is your microbiome or microbiota, which is your gut. Wow. Goes up the vagus nerve and deposits it into your brain. Now, I happen to work with Dr. Ken Blum, who's the geneticist who found the main gene for addiction which is the DRD2 ALE1 variant gene. Now, just because you have that gene, and it's a whole string of other genes, but that's the main gene, okay, doesn't mean you become an addict because there's such a thing as epigenetics. Epigenetics means the social environment can change the gene expression. Right. So this is the information I give people. Processed sugar, processed foods causes havoc in the body. The immune system, look at COVID. They're not talking about the immune system, which I think is very stupid. Exactly. Okay, if you build up your immune system, you can fight a lot of things. Right. Now, here I am, a kid from the South Bronx, only really went to the ninth grade. He's got a GED. And I'm talking science to you. Now, how did that happen? Well, when I was on the island of St. Kitts, there was a bunch of neuroscientists that used to come there, talk to Dr. Mesh. And I used to sit around morning, afternoon, and dinner, okay, and they were talking the brain, neuroscience, and I'm sitting there thinking they're talking Chinese. Well, after 13 years, I guess you get that. I was in school, but a different kind of school. Right. You have to pick it up. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how I learned how to talk about all of this stuff, all of it. And I'm currently in right now 79 medical and scientific peer-reviewed journals. Wow. I'm with scientists, researchers, and clinicians from around 15 universities. How did that happen? I don't know. It happened one moment at a time. And this is why I go do podcasts and do all that stuff. You know my history. You know my education. You know all of this stuff. And look where I winded up. Yeah. So all I can tell everybody out there, never, ever give up on anything. Okay? Just keep moving forward. That's an absolutely amazing journey. When I was in meetings, I used to curse at God. I don't want to hear about God early in recovery. And one of the old timers came up to me and said, John, what about G-O-D? I said, look, man, I know how to spell. He said, no, 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 no. Good, orderly direction. That's my God. I said, I'll take that. That was my God for the first couple of years. Wow. And I went into spirituality. I don't really necessarily believe in religion. And the funny part is I used to go to church with one of the women I married. And we went for a couple of years to this church. And we learned ecclesiastics and all this other kind of stuff that you learn. Right. And one day they came up and said, would you like to be a priest and ordained? I went, yeah, okay. All right. So, <laughs> you, know, I said, you know, they gave us a test and talked to us and see what knowledge we had. And I get a diploma. 
So the diploma's on my wall in my office. So one of my students is a rabbi, and he's a head chaplain for the North Miami Police Department. So he looks at my wall, he said, John, what is that? I says, I'm a priest. I said, that's what they told me. And he said, is that real? I said, you want to know the truth? I'm not sure. He said, give it to me. He went and he learned about it, okay? And it was real. There's 15,000 priests all over the world that belong to this church of Mancheselvec, okay? So he says, how would you like to be the chaplain for the police department? I says, okay. So they gave me a pamphlet about this big of, of documents I had to fill out, just like the police officer has to fill out. Who's your relatives? Who's this? Who's that? Blah, 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 right? You didn't fill that part out, did you? <laughs> well, I, I did the best I could. <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, I gave it to them. And guess what? I'm a chaplain for the police department for the last seven years. Wow, that's awesome. So I do trauma work. I work with police officers that have been in shootings. And I work with guys coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan and people that have been molested and raped, stuff like that. That's amazing. And in closing, because I have to... Oh, my train is here. Oh, I'm sorry. In closing, I opened up a ketamine clinic. It's called Ketamine Clinic South Florida. Okay? It's in Boca Raton. And it works unbelievable for depression and anxiety. And we treat the gut. We do integrative coaching for them. We do group therapy. We do counseling. We do NAD+. We do nutrient IVs. We do Stella Ganglia, which is... When you get COVID, mm-hmm. you lose your taste and your sense, some people, and, it, and it, well, right. well, they put the ganglia to sleep and it reboots itself when it wakes up and you get your taste and everything back. Wow. So is this kind of like a holistic center? Yeah, well, it's a wellness academy clinic. So I work with two anesthesiologists okay, and me and a couple of nurses and stuff like that and a psychiatrist. And that's what we do. So that's it. That's amazing. I'm done. I got to run. <laughs> Okay. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed listening to your journey for sure. I I know I could chat forever and I could talk for three days. I have about 30 other questions for you, but I understand. Yeah, it's awesome. You've you've lived quite a life. Well, maybe we could do this again and we can do some more questions. Oh, I'd love that. Thank you. Why not? Listen, I'm here to help God's kids. I hope they can glean some of my information and get help, you know, And, and that's what I do. I mean, I love what I do. For sure. Yeah, I love that you can sell a business for 45 million and yet you're still giving back to the community every day. That's amazing. You have to. It's not about money. Listen, money, you you win, you lose. But you know what? Your reputation, once you lose that, you're done. And if you don't go and, and give back what was so freely given to you, then it's empty. Money is great. It helps. I'm not saying it doesn't work. It doesn't help. Right. But that's not what floats my boat. That's wonderful, I think. What floats my boat is helping people and being on shows like this. So that's it. And then I have my other book, How to Beat Your Addictions and Live a Quality Life. You wrote three, didn't you, at least? I wrote four. I co-authored another one with Dr. Blum and all the other scientists. Oh, okay. If you go to my website, John, the initial J, Giordano.com, you'll see all the books and the videos and the shows and all that other stuff. Okay. I'll put it in the show notes for sure so people can find it. Yeah, the way I wrote it is I interviewed 200, around 200 addicts and alcoholics and people that are eating disorders and different behaviors. And I wanted to know what they did to stay in recovery, because it's not just about quitting behaviors and drugs and alcohol, it's about living a life, a quality life that you give back to the community. And I wanted to know what they did. I put it in a book. Then I interviewed about 150, maybe 125, I don't know, people that chronically relapsed. 
I want to know what they did and what they didn't do. I put that in the book. I put my own stuff in the book. And at the end of the book, you'll see a lot of the research papers that you could go Google and have fun with. And that's it. Okay. That'll be awesome. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right. Listen, thank you for having me on the show, Michelle. Absolutely. All right. Everybody have a wonderful day and never give up. Take care. Bye. Thank you for that. Bye-bye. As we wrap up today's episode, I hope John sharing his journey has helped you in some way. I really enjoyed talking with John. I feel like the message he really wanted to convey the most is never give up on your dreams, never give up on your passion, never give up on God, and never give up on yourself. John has truly overcome so much. His spirit and perseverance and his desire to learn and achieve are so admirable, to say the least. He truly is an amazing person. Secondly, I think a big takeaway for me is the fact that John used one of his own biggest challenges or pain or however you want to look at it and turned it around to help countless other people. I think he found his true purpose in this life because he doesn't want to see other people suffer the way he did or the way his family did. And he found a way out and now he wants everyone who is in a similar situation to find their way out too. So in other words, he turned his mess into his mission and he has been blessed for it many times over as he should be. It's so awesome to see. So as always, I hope this episode helps at least one person. And with that, I hope you have a blessed week, my friend. Thank you for listening to The Beauty in the Mess. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share it with a friend. And if you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on your favorite pod player. If you have any questions or comments, any topic ideas you would like to hear about, or you think you would be a great guest on the show, you can reach me directly at thebeautyinthemess.com. Thanks for listening.